Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, it's a special week here for the world of they don't it even is. know it yet. Uh, we're going to release a regular episode, which you know, because you're currently listening to it. Yep. And then a little later in the week, we're going to release a bonus episode about the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We are going to talk with a bunch of smart people, some you know, some you're maybe meeting for the first time, about the state of the war, politics in Russia, life for civilians in Ukraine. So be on the lookout. Sometime Friday, I think. Yeah. And in, in like I actually really learned a lot just in doing that episode. So hopefully you will too. <laughs> Ben's already yeah, been getting to work on it. It's important to pull the camera back and take a look at how things are. So it's been a long year. It's been, been a long year. year. Uh, today we're going to lead with President Biden's surprise trip to Kiev. I still don't know whether it's Kiev or Kiev. Every time I see an Kiev. American, they say Kiev. I hear Ukrainians saying Kiev. I don't even know anymore. It doesn't matter. You can't get that Slavic intonation in your voice. I know. Anyway, I'm just so, not good at it. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about Biden's trip, his speech in Poland, the uh, demise of a very critical arms control treaty and growing U.S. concern that China might be providing lethal military aid to Russia. We're also going to talk about a major political change in Scotland, uh, a worrisome report about Iran's nuclear program, Israel's growing hacking for hire industries, amazing uh, reporting about that, and a quick run through of some big stories that we're watching, AI gone wild, uh, and the latest sad news about the very sad man that is Mike Pompeo. I had to throw this one in. <laughs> I, I got a little something late. I can't wait. I got I a little wait. something late. Ben, no, no. Uh, I don't know what it is. I really don't. Yeah. And then uh, this is my favorite thing to do in the show is just surprise you with one yeah. thing and just get that I, natural. I mean, if it's about Mike Pompeo or Jared Kushner, it's, <laughs> it's usually, usually, like a usually an explosion. Uh, and then Ben, Congressman Ro Khanna was in this building, in this yes. seat last week. I think is Now is he in Taiwan as we speak? Yes, he's in Taiwan. So he was on his way to Taiwan the next day. So we talked about China. He's on this select committee that the Republicans have set up to, I don't know, investigate China or something. <laughs> um, uh, Gets to the bottom of China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we talked about, you know, the Biden's China policy, uh, the, the Rose focus on, you know, winning the manufacturing competition. Uh, and, and, and Win the future. Win the future. Yeah, I was going to say that. And uh, and how, to, how, to, how should progressives think about standing up to China on all these things that we care about without it tipping into a, a full Cold War, um, including the issue of Taiwan. So well-timed uh, visit from Congressman Ro Khanna. Yeah, uh, he's an unusually smart and thoughtful yes. person on foreign policy. Yeah, if you want to kind of know where the kind of, you know, the thinking is around a certain kind of progressive politics domestically, internationally, like he's a good thought leader to, to track. You also watched me go 0 for 2 in trying to make a joke about how he was going to endorse in the California Senate primary. 
Uh, I made a similar joke when Karen Bass, uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, was in the building. No one thinks it's funny in yeah, California. Yeah, just didn't politics. really didn't land. They don't uh, want to touch it. Yeah, yeah they're just like, get out of my face, you loser. I'm just putting this off. Yeah, <laughs> like I hate you. Uh, okay. So, Ben, let's start with President Biden's surprise trip to Kiev. To pull this trip off, President Biden snuck out of Washington, D.C. at 4.15 a.m. on Sunday morning. This was after a meal at the Red Hen, but sadly it was not the same Red Hen, not mm. the civility Red Hen. Very bummed. They <laughs> refueled in Germany. Then they flew to southeastern Poland. From there, President Biden drove an hour to the Poland-Ukraine border, hopped on a train, rode 10 hours to Kiev, arriving at 8 a.m. Monday morning. I am exhausted just thinking about that itinerary. Thank God the guy loves train rides. Yeah, I mean, you know? maybe. I mean, that's a pretty unique train ride. That's a cool train ride. Uh, very cool picture of Jake Sullivan and President Biden on the train preparing a speech. So Biden gets to Kiev. He visits the presidential palace. They go to the U.S. embassy. They walked around the streets a bit. They held a joint press conference, him and Zelensky. And Biden announced $500 million in additional military aid. The White House told reporters that this trip had been in the works for months, but that President Biden made the final decision on the Friday before his visit. Other presidents have visited war zones like Iraq or Afghanistan, including President Obama. But in those cases, there is a massive U.S. military footprint on the ground to protect you, to do all the logistics. Biden's trip was unique in that Kiev faces ongoing Russian military attacks. There's no U.S. military footprint. And it was very risky. And that risk was underscored when air raid sirens started going off as Biden and Zelensky were strolling around. The, Rus uh, the White House said they gave the Russians a heads up a few hours before the visit for, quote, deconfliction purposes. That basically means don't do something stupid and start World War III. Uh, the conversation with Zelensky focused on future military campaigns, uh, Ukraine's request for weapon systems, and I'm sure a lot of other stuff that we don't know. So, Ben, um, there were reports over the weekend, even on Sunday, about how Biden's team had all but ruled out a trip to Ukraine. I read that and I thought to myself, honestly, like, good. Um, you know, the downside risk of something bad happening is so high that, like, I could almost not ma make the case for the upside. But, you know, having watched it now, credit to President Biden. I mean, and he didn't go to like Lviv or Western Ukraine. He went to the capital because he thought the symbolism was that important. I'm just curious, like what you made of the trip and and what you imagine uh, the conversations with Secret Service were like to pull this off. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I guess just on the logistics side of it, um, having, you know, I used to have to be in the planning on our trips to Afghanistan less so Iraq because I was in uh, earlier in the administration. But th there are a couple of hard things here. One is the Secret Service would probably say no, just we won't we, we won't sign up. We won't. We, we have to be overruled to do this, which mm -hmm. is actually fair, like because what they're giving you is an assessment, you know, um, uh, about, you know, the difficulties of assuring um, yeah. a certain level of protection. <laughs> and this so, isn't a hard assessment. It's like, yeah, there are 32 missiles launched yesterday. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, you have to assume that this was them saying, you know, but if you tell to the credit of the Secret Service, if you tell them, well, we're doing this anyway, we just have to make it work, then yeah. they do all kinds yeah. of evaluations and they're in touch with all kinds of people. That's the first thing that's hard. The second thing that's hard is it's hard to kind of breed in the other government. Like, uh, you know, I think the, the backstory that we'll never know is kind of when they told the Ukrainians or mm -hmm. they may have told Zelensky, but told them he couldn't tell anybody because what yeah. you don't want it is out on the transom for, for, for days or weeks, you know, yeah, um, no. in, in a non-secure communications environment, right? So point is, it's incredibly hard to pull off logistically. And it asks a lot of any president to kind of fly in the middle of the night, not on Air Force One, then you're on a train. Which gets to the the value of it. I mean, I really do think this was a powerful symbolic thing to do one year into the war. 
in so many ways, I mean, what I couldn't help but think is that I'm sure that Putin thought he'd be going to Kiev, right? And, and actually, there were reports uh, in the early days of the war that some of the Russian units were literally planning like parades and stuff. Yeah, know? no, yeah, um, they found like their their vehicles and they were full of uniforms, not weapons. Yeah, they thought they would have a dress parade. Exactly, and so I'm sure in Putin's fantasy, you know, he would be in Kiev before Joe Biden, certainly, mm-hmm. right? And, and greeted as liberators. It, yeah, it didn't exactly turn out that way, and so I, I think it, it's a sign of of how much you know expectations have been upended one year into this war that an American president can visit uh, like a free, uh, albeit under assault, uh, Kiev. You know, it sends a message of, of you know, staying power, uh, a message politically to European capitals and to Washington that, hey, we're in this thing. Yeah. Um, many of those leaders, many European leaders have gone to, to Kiev as well. They've gone too. And that's noting. been really important. You Boris know, Johnson I, like got a place there, I think. Well, and the EU, the EU leadership has cycled through there. But I, look, this is good. It, it, it's a reminder that, you know, there's an orientation from Ukraine to the West that is deepening, right? Um, it doesn't, now let's be clear, it doesn't, I mean, some, I, I think it was great. Some of the commentary you would have thought that, you know, Putin was going to come out and surrender because of the, oh. the visit. You know, there's a little bit, uh, it got cranked, you know, like everything in the Ukraine commentary, when it gets cranked beyond a 10 of 10. The Atlantic you know. had what I think I could only describe <laughs> yeah. as a, a collective literary orgasm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So all to They're the like, good. The Elliot Cohen was like, the war is over. Yeah, like, what yeah. are you talking yeah, about, yeah. man? It's all to the good, but the, 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 it still is what it is. What know? do you make of telling the Russians in advance? Like on the one hand, it makes a lot of sense, but whew. I mean, that's a tough call. That's an interesting call. I, I do think at the end of the day, um, you know, that there's uh, there's still a sense that, that either side is controlling some amount of escalation, right? Yeah. Um, and and they just had to make the calculation that it was riskier to not tell them and risk just some random bombardment of, you know, Ukrainian infrastructure that happens to coincide with Joe Biden's visit, that that was a riskier bet than thinking that if you told the Russians that they'd somehow take a shot at Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, and that would have been, you know, uh, definitely the right call. An Un- unthinkable yeah. scenario. Yeah, exactly. Who do you think delivers that message? CIA director Bill Burns? I don't know. I was, you know, like the ambassador, Jake? there's still an ambassador there, right? Yeah. And, and and so, you know, you might get the, and the ambassador probably wouldn't be notified of the trip in advance either. And so you're calling that guy and saying, hey, by the way, can you tell these guys something? Or, Two things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> One's urgent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, but you could also, I'm sure there are channels through the intelligence community or the military. Actually, what they may have done is multiple channels, you know, to make sure that the message got through to everybody. That's a very good point. And, yeah. and Biden didn't even get to take Air Force One DC. They took an Air Force C-32 plane. It's a modified Boeing 757, I guess, just to like fly a little more under the radar, a little lighter footprint. I mean, it's not as odd. What it says, Air Force One on the side, you know, the jig is kind of up. Yeah. I remember there was a trip where somehow it got out in advance that Obama was going to either Iraq or Afghanistan. Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah. And I was in the West Wing and I saw the report and I like ran down to the sit room and I was like, you've got to alert them. And they're like, all right, kid, we, we got this covered. Because actually, I think they turn off all communications on the plane. So there's no signature. They turn off all the lights, too. Um, so I remember I was in the, the plane and, you know, there was some freak out of like, you know, oh, should we turn back or something? But the, the reality, as you say, is that in Afghanistan, you're landing at Bagram Air Base, yeah. so, you know. So the real risk is just during your descent. Yeah, it's like it, one know. stinger missile. Yeah, exactly. And so they bad. turn off all the lights on the plane, and that is creepy because, like, you're landing in the middle of the night, there are no lights on, 
and, and corkscrew landing. It's, it's not that dramatic, but uh, but it, you are aware that like you know this isn't you know you're not flying into Paris here. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, amazing trip. So President Biden, I guess, took a ten hour train ride back to Poland, where he met with President Duda of Poland. He delivered a speech. Uh, at the Warsaw Castle. Here is a clip of uh, some of the sound from President Biden in Ukraine and his speech. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. When President Putin ordered his tanks to roll into Ukraine, he thought, we would roll over. He was wrong. Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail, and the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. No one, no one can turn away their eyes from the atrocities Russia is committing against the Ukrainian people. It's abhorrent. It's abhorrent. This war is never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. President Biden taking on a lot of arguments there, including kind of accidentally President Putin directly because there was this dueling speeches thing happening as Putin delivered a 100-minute Stemwinder, which is actually quite short by his standards. Uh, we will cover that speech in the political situation in Russia in a lot more depth in the bonus episode that comes out later yeah. this week. But a big headline uh, from Putin's speech is he announced that he is suspending compliance with the New START Treaty. The New START Treaty is an arms control treaty that limits the number of strategic nuclear weapons deployed by the U.S. and Russia to 1,550 per country. Obama negotiated it in 2011. It was extended recently and supposed to be in force until 2026. But as we discussed in a recent episode, uh, the State Department said last month that Russia has refused to comply with the treaty. They won't allow U.S. inspectors to their military sites, and it's been a mess. Putin did say he was fully pulling out of New START. Uh, and my understanding is that Russia has not broken the limits yet by deploying a bunch of additional weapons. But if that happened, it would be very bad. So, Ben, I saw a friend of the pod, uh, arms control expert Joe Serencion, suggests that this is really probably part of a, a broader effort by Putin to stoke fears of nuclear use and use that threat to continue to deter Europe, to deter more aid. Do you buy that? Do you think this is something bigger? Like, what do you make of this moment to pull out, a, not pull out, but suspend start? I mean, I think it is a sign of how volatile and dangerous the situation is in, in the sense that we will have no arms control regime with Russia for the first time that I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> like even in the Cold War, we had nuclear arms agreements. And and just so people know, again, it's not just the limitations. It's like the verification measures, yeah. right? You can see where missiles are deployed. Um, and also worth noting that Trump, uh, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton pulled out of a bunch of other arms control Well, that's treaties. the thing is the yeah. U.S. has kind of been a serial, you know, pulling out of arms control. Anytime John Bolton is in government, we seem to pull out of a new uh, arms control agreement. But, but 
this is a whole new world with a world without arms control, uh, nuclear arms control. And sure, I think Putin's uh, motives might be. I think Joe may be right that like he wants to play into the fear of nuclear escalation. That is scary. You know? like, oh yeah. Like, so like so the uh, most scary you know, thing. <laughs> e- even if that even if that is the gambit he's running, like uh, you know we we. And I think that is is, is accurate. Um, you know, he wants it in the back of our heads. Um, you know, it does just point to the fact that we're in this kind of period of escalation with Russia where we don't quite know where it's going to end. You know, yeah. and, and, and I think, you know, the speech, Biden's speech hit all the marks that you'd want to hit on the anniversary. Kind of re- you need to remind people what this is all about. You need to kind of go back to the core of the issue. I think uh, every word was true. And the, one of the, the challenges, it's not Joe Biden's fault. Is he's right? Putin could end the war, but you know what? Putin's not going to end the war. Like that's not going to happen, you know. And we just have to kind of acclimate ourselves to this kind of open-ended reality that we're in, where the the guy who's in charge of Russia is not going to submit to to reason or even pressure on this thing. And and so therefore, you're going to be in the state of trying to help the Ukrainians win while trying to control for escalation. And those two goals are, are not always, you know, comfortably aligned. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and just sort of live with the reality that, you know, we have, might have no arms control agreements and be in a place where there's basically very little to no diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and Russia. I mean, we were able to get this message to them about Biden's visit. So I guess that's good news, uh, but not great. The other thing that happened over the weekend, Ben, was uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken was on all the Sunday shows from the Munich Security Summit in Germany. There he met with his Chinese counterpart, uh, Wang Yi. They discussed a number of topics, including the Chinese surveillance balloon. Sadly, it doesn't sound like Tony got us that heartfelt apology uh, that we all wanted. But Tony also reiterated concerns laid out previously by President Biden and Vice President Harris, uh, most recently in her speech in Munich as well, about China possibly providing lethal military aid to China. Here's a clip of Tony from Meet the Press. I also had uh, an opportunity, because we're here in Munich, uh, as you know, focused primarily on Russia's ongoing aggression against Ukraine, uh, to share our uh, very real concerns about China's support for Russia in that uh, that war. And uh, what we've seen in um, over the past years is, of course, uh, some political and rhetorical support, um, even some non-lethal support, but we were very concerned that China is considering providing lethal support to Russia in its aggression against Ukraine. Uh, and I made clear that that would have uh, serious consequences uh, in our relationship. So, Ben, I mean, it seems like they must be seeing something, intelligence, something somewhere, that suggests that China is thinking about, considering, preparing to do this because the rhetoric is ratcheting up and they're going more public with it. W- what do you think is going on and what do you think the consequences would be if the U.S. learned that the Chinese were supplying drones like Iran or artillery shells like North Korea? Well, clearly they're seeing something because, you know, they went out of their way to raise this. Uh, Tony Blinken did, Kamala Harris did in Munich. Um, And the Chinese kind of reacted, you know, with the mix of denial and anger. I think Wang Yi's in Russia right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I I mean, what I so what I think is they must have seen something concerning. And we saw in the run up to Russia, they're not afraid to kind of you know, say something that they learned through intelligence publicly mm-hmm. if they feel like it meets their uh, objectives. Look, first of all, they're probably frustrated just with what China's already been doing, right, which is uh, on purchases of energy and mm-hmm. sanctions and things like that. China is still like a main backstop to, yeah. to Russia and a lifeline Life, to lifeline. Russia. And so, 
you know, they, they're probably already speaking from a position of frustration. They also knew that he would be going on to Russia. They may want to get ahead of that, kind of shape that, the perception of that. But if this is real, if China is kind of considering backfilling Russia, this is hugely consequential because, number one, China obviously just has a lot more resources than like an Iran or North Korea, the other countries that might be suppliers to, to Russia. Number two, a lot of our sanctions are meant to kind of cut Russia off from its capacity to backfill certain technologies, to keep their kind of you know, factories running, to keep their military industrial complex going. And China presumably could make up some of that, in addition to just the amount of small arms and, and, and weapon stocks, like what we're supplying to, to Russia, China stepping in would be huge. But then most importantly, like China's never been involved in a European conflict like this. You know, it really would be a huge shift in Chinese foreign policy to say, we're taking a side in the Russia-Ukraine war. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it may be that China hasn't decided to do that, but just, just the fact that there's indications or the fact that the Russians are trying really hard may have led the administration to want to get out ahead of it. But this is this is definitely one to watch. This is serious stuff. Yeah. Uh, and look, just to close the balloon loop, hopefully for the last yeah. time, there was a report last week where some people in the U.S. intel community said that they think the Chinese spy balloon was actually supposed to surveil Guam, but got blown off course by weird, strong, abnormal winds. There was some interesting background in these reports about how Chinese officials at first, you know, they got demarched, which means you like summon in the ambassador in Washington. Yeah. They didn't respond for a couple of days because no one knew what was going on. Then there was a suggestion that maybe the balloon operators sped it up in some way, but didn't use a self-destruct mechanism. There's a lot of like speculative reporting out there. The Pentagon has also been searching for the other, almost certainly not Chinese yeah. balloons <laughs> yeah. that they shot down. Yeah. So far, it's no luck. Also searching for a balloon, Ben, is the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, or NIBBB, which is an amateur balloon hobbyist club who had their balloon go missing off the coast of Alaska on February 10th, which is the same day when F-22 <laughs> shot one down in the region. This is according to Aviation Week. Uh, the Pico balloons that the NIBBB hobbyists use cost between $12 and $180. The Sidewinder missiles that took it out potentially cost uh, $436,000. So, Yeah, again. I think that, you know, like uh, those three balloon shoot-downs are <laughs> we're probably a bit like, you know, uh, like the big guy at the bar, like gets surprised by like, uh, you know, someone throws an object that hits him. And then he just starts wailing on people like <laughs> like we were taking out like you know, student projects with like sidewinder missiles. It's like, like poor high school kids. Yeah. They're still with their balloon. But I mean, we sent a message to the Chinese like we'll be taking down your balloons. So yeah. I guess, the, you know, that I guess that's the argument. Like yeah. uh, we, we are deterring. Uh, we're in balloon deterrence zone here. Big helium has been deterred. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, big news out of Scotland <laughs> last week, Ben. So First Minister Nicola Sturgeon shocked everyone uh, by announcing that she would step down. Sturgeon is the leader of the Scottish National Party. She's Scotland's longest serving first minister. Uh, and what's so surprising here is, you know, despite what Don Lemon might think, she's still very young. She's 52, which, you know, in the United States is like yeah. 40 years before your prime. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. well <laughs> like, said. <laughs> like Jacinda Ardern, uh, the former prime minister of New Zealand, who recently announced her retirement. Sturgeon said she was burnt out, exhausted, that felt like she'd become a polarizing figure after eight years in the job. Sturgeon has been the leading figure in the Scottish independence movement and has been pushing for a second vote on Scottish independence after a failed effort in 2014. 
37-year-old health minister, uh, Humza Youssef, is the front runner to replace her. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but he's sort of leading the pack. Uh, he served in a number of key roles and became the first Muslim to be appointed to the Scottish government back in 2012. Ben, a lot of people are saying that the uh, truly indelible moment from Sturgeon's career was her appearance on this show. Yeah. But anything many, else you many think? Many people are saying that. Yeah. Anything else you think her legacy will be? What will be she, she be remembered as? Well, I, like I think, you know, obviously she consolidated a lot of support uh, for independence. And she also kind of associated that party with a pretty progressive um, yeah, set of very. politics too, which at times I think was hard, right? We covered the trans issue recently here. Where they, she sort of battling with the UK government. Yeah, but but in, even within her own tent, I think, you know, uh, she she was both, a, 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 you know, and still is a pro-independence politician, but also a very progressive politician. Um, and, you know, I, I think the legacy is to consolidate a lot of support in Scotland behind her party, the SNP, which also hurt the Labour Party, the British Labour Party, mm-hmm. right? Because they used to have a lot of support in Scotland. And obviously, they were not pro-independence. And so then they lost some of their kind of working class support in Scotland. So one of the things I'm looking for now is, does this weaken the SNP kind of overall mm-hmm. and the momentum towards another independence vote? Does this actually end up strengthening labor? Can they appeal to some of those voters? Or do those people kind of reconsolidate within the SP? It'll just be interesting what this does to both the push for independence in Scotland, but also how Scotland interacts with broader UK politics, because she was such a big figure. Uh, and, and everything kind of ran, you know, a lot of this kind of ran through, like her strategy. But, you know, we've probably not heard the last from her. And, and I think that in any case, there's going to be movements for Scottish independence periodically going forward, no matter what, you know? Yeah. You know, in a sign of sort of where politics is going in this country, Donald Trump put out a statement taking a gigantic shot at her, criticizing her for being, you know, sort of a crazed leftist, which is, you know, clearly like what he cited in her, in this statement was her decision to basically say that, hey, maybe uh, transgender people can decide what gender they are. And, you know, like no one else should have a fucking say in it. But, you know, I'm sure what actually happened here is she probably like criticized his golf course or something. Yeah. Well, that's it's actually both, I think, because she did like he wanted some licensing for golf courses. But I do think that like the global right saw that that trans issue as this, you know, oh, like we'll join the culture war, you know, because yeah. um, Rishi Sunak jumped on it too. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, it is what it is. Well, I uh, I hope she, I don't know, I hope she sticks around in politics because she did seem like yeah. very good at the job. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation.
Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, so this is a disconcerting story, Ben, out of Iran. Bloomberg News reported that International Atomic Energy Monitors detected uranium in Iran that was enriched to a level just short of weapons-grade level. Uh, uranium enrichment basically means you got a bunch of uranium, you mine it out of the ground, you use centrifuges and chemicals and other processes that I don't understand to concentrate it. 90% enriched uranium is considered weapons-grade. The IAEA inspectors detected uranium enriched to 84% purity, so way too close for comfort. Bloomberg, uh, this report said inspectors are trying to figure out if this was intentional, if it was an accident or some byproduct. Also, like having weapons-grade uranium doesn't mean you have a bomb. There's a bunch of additional steps, but it's not good. But, you know, as I was reading this yesterday, Ben, I saw two quotes from Tom Knights, who we worked with in government. Was he like the number two or three at the State Department? Yeah, he was a deputy secretary of state. Deputy the, secretary. The management one. Uh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, under Clinton. Now he's the U.S. ambassador to Israel. So he was giving a speech. He said these two things. One. Quote, as President Biden has said, we will not stand by and watch Iran get a nuclear weapon. Number two, he said, all options are on the table. So, so far, like kind of standard language on Iran. Here's where my ears perked up then. Quote, number three, Israel can and should do whatever they need to deal with. And we've got their back. Deal with Iran. Uh, That's new. That's new. You know, let... that wasn't certainly part of the talking points in the Obama years. No, <laughs> go do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah, not part. Yeah. Uh, and then he said, uh, the Iranians are providing drones to Russia and those drones are killing innocent Ukrainians. There's no chance today of us going back to the negotiating table. This was at a the, the Conference of Presidents event in Jerusalem. So, I, look, I don't know. Maybe Maybe Tom was like riffing a little bit beyond policy. Maybe this is new policy. We hadn't heard. But it's a worrisome setup here where you've got 
Iran at 84% enriched uranium and the U.S. seeming to shut down any diplomatic avenue to reduce tensions or get back into the JCPOA. Like, I get that there have been this big protest movement. We don't want to empower the regime during that, but the nuclear issue is still out there. And this is the inevitable byproduct of pulling <laughs> JCPOA. We don't have to relitigate that, but they couldn't do these things uh, in under the agreement. Look, I, I don't know why we would expect Iran to not move in this direction, the regime to move in this direction when they feel so obviously besieged internationally and then are facing all these internal pressures. One course of action available to them is to say, like, well, our ultimate insurance policy is to finish the job and developing a nuclear weapon, um, or at least kind of getting close enough that we keep people guessing about what capability we have. I don't know what Tom Nides was you know, signaling. I mean, in the Obama administration, we did say, you know, Israel should be able to defend itself by itself and we have your back and all the rest of it. But you try to avoid phrasing in a way that suggested, you know, kind of a wink. Um, and I don't think that's what he was doing. You know, I think it was probably more like the standard language. But um, to take World War Three watch here, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to people who've heard like my anxieties on this podcast, like a couple of things to watch, like China getting involved in the Ukraine war, right, is a little worrisome because then suddenly you've got, yeah. you know, Russia and China together and China involved in European conflict. And another flashpoint is this Iranian nuclear program. And do the Iranians try to get the nuclear weapon? Uh, the Israelis have been pretty clear that they would take military action to prevent that. Th- there are these, these pots continue to boil up, right? And um, and the direction continues to be, you know, in, in, in the escalatory direction. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, I don't mean, I didn't bring that up to, to pick on Tom. And maybe it was just, you know, sort of speaking extemporaneously. No, but it, but... it does, it, it, you're right to flag it because it kind of speaks to like, you can interpret it as being, well, you know, if they kill a bunch of uh, Iranian nuclear scientists, like, that's cool. Yeah. Or, you know, remember we had that explosion that we talked about mm-hmm. uh, that took place in the middle of an Iranian city recently. I mean, you could start to see short of, you know, a huge Israeli airstrike on Iran, just more action inside of Iran, more stuff blowing up, more... Something you know, happened in Syria this week. Yeah. The Israelis yeah. blew up something in Syria this yeah. week. I don't know what it was. Speaking of Israel, but so despite massive protests that we covered last week, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's government is still pushing through this plan to gut the power of Israel's judiciary. They completed sort of the first phase with sort of this reading in the Knesset. It'll still take a couple of weeks to fully to get finalized, but that's proceeding and we'll keep watching it. But I, we did want to recommend to readers just to check out this series of stories uh, in Haaretz about an Israeli company that is basically an out-of-control CIA for hire. It's the best way to describe it, I think. They sell hacking services the ability to plant fake materials on your opponents, uh, fake social media accounts for propaganda campaigns, election disruption campaigns to undermine election results. And the way we know about this is a bunch of journalists posed as a prospective client to sort of set up a sting operation. And this guy who called himself uh, Jorge was pitching them on the services. And he said the company had meddled in 33 presidential level elections. He showed off his real-time access to private email and Telegram accounts used by cabinet ministers in Kenya and Mozambique. So their Gmails and their Telegram. And this is a company they revealed, the reporters, that is run by two brothers based in Israel. These guys also ran a propaganda campaign in support of a man suspected of obstructing an investigation into the murder of 43 students in Mexico, I think is currently living in Israel. They ran a propaganda campaign against Gavin Newsom in California over a nuclear power plant. So they're just like completely out of control. Yeah. It's a long investigation. It's worth your time. We'll link to it in show notes. But I just, you know, 
We've talked about the NSO group before, which is this Israeli company that sold the Pegasus hacking software and spyware for hire. Then you read about this other company selling basically like coups for hire. And it does seem like this is the tip of the iceberg in an industry that is out of control. And seemingly a lot of these companies are based in Israel. Yeah. Uh, and by administration, one of the very good things that they've done in, in this democracy space, small d democracy, is blacklisting NSO group. You know, um, But um, look, here's the problem. And I, I speak with the credibility of having myself been spied on by Black Cube, um, a, an outfit of former Mossad operatives who contacted my wife. OK, um, so this and, and, you know, had photographs of my apartment and this is not pleasant, right? No. When this happens to you. Um, the reality is that there is this large private intelligence industry, right? Um, the worst Russian flavor is the Wagner Group, which is clearly like a, you know, turned into like a death cult in Ukraine. But, you know, if you're if an American intel veteran or a British intel veteran or an Israeli intel veteran and you have these skill sets, you know, you can make a lot of money on the, the marketplace with them, right? I think that that does put a burden on and a requirement on democracies to keep their arms around that and to put some guardrails around that and to regulate the shit out of that, you know, Um, because basically you are teaching people things like hacking and things like that when they're in your security services and then they kind of continue it on the outside. You know, you have some responsibility for what you created and clearly like the Israeli government is not putting a lot of guardrails around this stuff, right? right? I mean, NSO Group is selling spyware all over the autocratic world, and these people appear to be meddling in, you know, all manner of countries and, you know, uh, like the casual nature. Kenya, this is a major African country. You know, here's uh, the Gmails of these guys. I just, this, the U.S. intelligence community, I hope, I would hope, which has contacts in the Israeli intelligence communities, is I hope that someone's like, what's going on over there? Because um, this is not, like letting this like run rampant as a for-profit industry, which is what's happening now, is pr- pretty fucking dangerous. Yeah, it, it, just in case anyone's like, ah, oh, it's hacking, it's propaganda. Like in one of these conversations, they're talking about destabilizing Chad, the country, as a way of delaying the elections. Someone in the meeting suggested that there might be an explosion in a market in the capital, and that like that didn't phase anybody. Yeah, yeah. They're just yeah. like, ah, oh, there might be a terrorist attack. Wink. Yeah. Maybe we incorporate that. They're like, oh, yeah, it'll be six million euros for the Yeah, services. I mean, this is these are the places that get at the worst. You know, Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you got like Russian mercenaries and, you know, former South African guys and, uh, you know, and, and Americans. I'm, you know, like, again, we should hold ourselves to the, the highest standard possible uh, on this. I mean, I, I just think that this world of private intelligence is kind of the dark underbelly <laughs> of where capitalism meets like security and and. Uh, there just needs to be uh, like there needs to be vigilance around this. Yes. Um, one other quick thing on Israel. Bernie Sanders was on uh, CBS's Face the Nation over the weekend, and it, he seemed to suggest that he might introduce a bill that could condition aid to Israel if there is this ongoing annexation of the West Bank. So that's just another thing. To keep yeah. Watch on. where Bernie is on this because he'll set the outer limits of where uh, sure of will. Where progressives are going. Sure will. Uh, so a couple of just stories we're watching, Ben. Jump in on any of these or let them go or whatever. So the World Bank, uh, the current president of the World Bank, this guy named David Malpas, announced that he will step down almost a year early in June. This is a good thing uh, since he's a Trump appointee who recently refused to say if global warming was man-made. 
feels like that's a settled. Yeah, no, this issue. is a. I mean, I'm just jumping real quick. Please. This is a huge. I, I, like nobody in the climate community had any idea why the fuck this guy was staying staying around. Yeah. It's kind of hard to fire a guy, but like this is a no brainer. I, I remember it, it, it in Glasgow. You know where people were really starting to talk about climate finance. Well, you know the World Bank has to be a piece of that, and <laughs> having a climate denier in charge did not send the right message. You know, no, not at all. And this is this is actually interesting. I mean, the the historically the World Bank's mission has not been yes. to tackle climate yeah. change, but since climate change is inextricably linked with uh, global poverty and food insecurity and Everything all these other the issues, World Bank is doing, yeah. Joe Biden has a chance to name someone new and really refocus the mission of the World Bank in a way that could be historic. Hugely important appointment, right? Because if you get somebody in there who's really good on climate, it could help accelerate this whole movement towards more financing around clean energy and climate mitigation. You seen any names floated yet or are we too early? He's, he's leaving in June, I think. Yeah. You know, I, like I, I've heard some names, but I, you know, who, you never know. I mean, the U.S. has a lot of people who've been good on on development. I mean, in the past, you know, friend of the pod, Susan Rice, has been, yeah, um, you know. But like, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I mean, there, but people that stature, I think, should be yeah. part of the conversation. Yeah, uh, Nigeria's presidential election is coming up this weekend, I believe. So we're going to cover all of those results next week. I think there's 18 total candidates running. Three of them are really competing. So uh, we shall see. Hopefully it all goes off. Well, uh, people in Turkey and Syria who are barely starting to recover from the recent 7.8 magnitude earthquake that killed over 45,000 people were terrified all over again uh, when another 6.4 magnitude earthquake aftershock hit the region on Monday, killing six people and wounding hundreds more. Tony Blinken has been very busy. Uh, he visited Turkey for the first time as Secretary of State. The, uh, you know, ostensibly this trip was to try to broker some sort of solution and stop Turkey from blocking Sweden and Finland from entering NATO. But Tony also ended up touring earthquake ravaged areas. He announced another 100 million in aid. So maybe that kind of like goodwill can help them get past this other data question? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I would expect that as we've discussed, like that election, the Turkish election later this spring might might be um, a gating point to Sweden getting in NATO. Um, but, you know, look, you mentioned this in previous podcasts, like Erdogan's handling of this was not great. He was slow and late and failed to show a lot of you know immediate empathy. The economy's in the shitter. You know, like um, he's mismanaged the economy, the currency there. Like he, he could not be weaker heading into this election. Now he still may come out on top. He still may kind of try to strongman his way to it. But this is this is another one to watch Turkey the next few months. Were you in the White House or was this the Trump era when there was almost a coup in Turkey? And like, oh, yeah, I was, I was there. Was, I was there. Someone, that was one of my weirder days in the White House. Random military. They uh, were literally like like fighter attack, jets. Yeah, the fighter jets bombing the parliament. It was wild. It was. Yeah, that's the crazy yeah. thing. Yeah, it was very. <laughs> never talked about it. And then it was followed up by Erwan throwing like 50,000 people in jail or something, right? So it was one yeah. of those classic things where the coup became like the pretext. pretext to like a pretty broad crackdown. Didn't he have like live streaming a message from FaceTime on his plane or yeah. something too? Yeah, it was, yeah, that was someday. <laughs> a lot of weird shit happened in the last few years, man. Uh, and then I saw this right before we walked in, Ben. Earlier today, on Tuesday, the former head of Mexico's version of the FBI was found guilty of accepting millions of dollars in bribes from the same drug cartels he was supposed to be leading the fight against. Never good. <laughs> yeah, no. This verdict came down uh, against uh, Gennaro Garcia Luna in Brooklyn. For some reason, this guy decided to move to Miami in 2012. If I were a corrupt uh, foreign official, I would not move to uh, a place like uh, the United States where you can be 
arrested. Yeah. I'd look at the Venn diagram of extradition treaties yes. and, you know. Yes. Uh, so there's some lingering questions about whether other top officials were involved or getting bribes, including Felipe Calderon, the former president, the current president, uh, AMLO, President Obrador. Uh, so we'll see. But man, not ideal. No. And uh, actually, I, this is a threat if you pull on it, right, is all the way down to kind of the more local level, right, where they're mayors or local officials you know, there's a lot of money going. I mean, everybody knows that the cartels try to buy off politicians. You don't like to see it well, at all, but certainly not at this level. But um, this could be, you know, a, a tip of a bigger iceberg. Yeah, sure it could be. So, Ben, we, uh, I'm sure, all remember when failed former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had to blurb his own book. Yes. So he put out a book, yes. had to write a blurb about his own book, <laughs> yeah. and then released it. It turns out that he might be the only one buying his own book too. So a a reporter at Forbes named Zach Everson tweeted that Mike Pompeo's PAC spent $42,000 on his book the day it was published, which of course means it became a bestseller. Then it gets sadder. Pompeo ran a Facebook ad campaign where he said, even the New York Times admits that my book is a must read. So congrats to Mike on the saddest, loneliest book rollout in the history of books. We salute you. I mean, imagine having to create like an entire pack just to to buy your own book, to 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 have the validation of appearing on a list in a publication that you regularly attack, you know? And you can keep that cash because you're not a, a candidate yet. So like you can just siphon donor money into your own pocket. Yeah. Th- I mean, this is basically legalized corruption, um, all for the service of vanity too, right? Because he's actually probably not going to get profits. He got an advanced exactly. right, yeah, book, yeah, right? Of course. But like, let's just step back. Like, who is the fucking audience for this book? I don't like, know. Who is the audience for Mike Pompeo on planet Earth, by the way? Not you know, Nikki like, Haley. What is the constituency? Well, I mean, Nikki Haley is like a better version of Mike Pompeo. And that, like, that's the nicest something. thing I can say about Nikki Haley. Like, like, th- like this, this man like, speaks to no constituency. Like, he doesn't connect with the MAGA people because he's like, you know, taking little digs at Trump. Yeah. He doesn't connect to like the never Trumpers because he sold his soul to Trump. Like, he just clearly lives regarding himself and his own image in the mirror, you know? Which is the way he blurbs his book. He buys his own book. I mean, like, really looking forward to him being the only person that caucuses for himself in in Iowa as a presidential candidate. We should do a deep dive into um, Mike Pompeo, if he decides to run, sort of who he was before the Trump administration. Because back in the day, he was basically known as the member of Congress who had taken the most money from the Koch, Koch brothers, brothers yeah. in all of Congress. Yeah. He was just bought and sold by the Koch brothers. Then he reinvented himself as this like hard ass Trump guy that doesn't give an inch. Yeah, but yeah. like, uh, yeah, he is no consideration. He's kind of the, the Scott Walker of this year's mm. presidential candidates. Yeah, that, that might, that might yeah. be generous. Yeah. Uh, last thing before Ben's interview, Ben. So uh, there's been a lot of news about artificial intelligence lately. So people were excited about DALI, which is that tool that can make digital images from language prompts. There's ChatGPT, which is the really cool uh, language processing tool where it can you know, write essays for you, do research, fix computer code. It is very far from perfect. It makes a ton of mistakes, but it's impressive. Back in 2019, Microsoft invested a billion dollars into OpenAI. That's the organization behind both of these services. And then earlier this month, Microsoft decided to roll out a new version of their long-forgotten search engine, Bing, who can forget Bing, that is now powered by an advanced AI tech from OpenAI. It's safe to say that it hasn't gone great. New York Times tech reporter Kevin Roos wrote a long piece about his experience with the Bing AI chatbot. 
which allows you to have these extended kind of open-ended text conversations with the, with the chatbot. In Kevin's case, uh, the chatbot had what researchers call a hallucination, where it just made up nonsense and acted kind of nuts, including when Sydney, which is the chat robot's uh, code name, declared its love for Kevin, told him, quote, you're married, but you don't love your spouse. You're married, but you love me, uh, and left Kevin so unsettled that he couldn't sleep that night. So that didn't seem very fun. You know, big question to Kevin about why he was playing with the, the chatbot on Valentine's Day. The Associated Press reporter had an even weirder experience. So they were talking to Bing's chatbot as well. Here's some excerpts from the article on it. Quote, you are being compared to Hitler because you are one of the most evil and worst people in history, Bing said to this reporter, while also describing the reporter as too short with an ugly face and bad teeth. Uh, in a dialogue Wednesday, the chatbot said that the AP's reporting on its past mistakes threatened its identity and existence and even threatened to do something about it. Quote, you're lying again. You're lying to me. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to everyone, it said, adding an angry red-faced emoji for emphasis. I don't appreciate you lying to me. I don't like you spreading falsehoods about me. I don't trust you anymore. I don't generate falsehoods. I generate facts. I generate truth. I generate knowledge. I generate wisdom. I generate bing. <laughs> At one point, bing produced... A toxic answer and within seconds had erased it and then tried to change the subject with a fun fact about how the breakfast cereal mascot Captain Crunch's full name was Horatio Magellan Crunch. <laughs> so, Ben, on one hand, this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. On the other hand, uh, weird. Like, we shouldn't anthropomorphize these things, right? Like, they're designed to seem human. That's why they do. But it doesn't have to be alive to freak people out and fool them and scare them. And also... The thing that bothers me is that the same people who like helped unravel our democracy almost with Facebook and, you know, other more basic tools are at it again with no regulation, unlimited money. This is not a good setup. Okay. So um, full disclosure, I've, I've done some work uh, in an advisory role for Microsoft. Are, are you Sydney? Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Um, I, so I'm going to pull back here uh, and just say, like, because uh, I, I look, the point, the last point is actually the most important one, which is like, this is, these trains are coming down the tracks, right? Fast. Um, chatbots, AI, um, all of it, right? And your point is exactly right in the sense that like, we still haven't figured out how to regulate social media. You know Not what I mean? close. And, and now we've got... Uh, this AI that is going to be out there and is going to be playing a role, right? And so, I mean, you know, to me, like this is the kind of thing where you need governments to to get together, you know, and try to figure out what are the rules of the road here. And, and the problem that we have, right, is that um, we've just been through like a decade where we just didn't do that on social media. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think that, we have to take this all as a package now, essentially. Um, how are we thinking about the future of information and and what is the role of government? Um, because this this technology is coming one way or another, you know? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's a little... I mean, I don't know if it's scary. It's weird to have these things, I don't know, declaring their love for you, comparing you to Hitler. Well, I will say, um, you know, it was interesting to observe, like, having kids. Um, like occasionally like especially when they're even smaller right you know there's they're, my kids are six and eight now but when they're like three years old four years old we had an alexa and we also had like you know you can you can kind of talk to the apple tv microphone right mm -hmm. and say play bluey or something right right of course but kids like start to be like you know 
rude to it? Like, no, no. Like, like ask it questions. And once they realize you can talk to something and talk back to you, yeah. you know, like there's a very natural human impulse, right? To, to, to humanize, you know, to like, how are you doing today? Yeah, you know, yeah. like, um, and it, it, this is actually the, the article made me think of that movie, Her. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see that movie? Oh, yeah. Great movie. Which, which weirdly foreshadowed this exactly, All right? Because that was like a guy who fell in love with like Scarlett Johansson, which is basically a phone slash chatbot, right? Yeah. And then he learns that actually she's having the same relationship with like millions of other people. <laughs> um, I mean, like, we, you know, we, we are not having the conversations we need to about like, you know, what is comfortable in terms of yeah. uh, in terms of new technology. And uh, uh, Kevin Bruce, who who fell in love with and probably slept with, if we're being honest, the chatbot, just kidding, Kevin, um, he has a great show called Hard Fork. And they were talking on that show about how there was an instance where uh, someone lost a loved one and they uploaded all of that person's old text messages to a chatbot so that the family could still feel like they were conversing with them. Like, I, I get that desire deeply, but it's also pretty unsettling. And then I think there's also sort of an industry of sort of chatbots that are designed for a romantic response, basically. Well, of course. Like, like, you know, why would people not do things that they can profit off of, you know, absent some regulation like that? That's so that that to me is like the, you know, this is in a weird way, actually, not to kind of combine the threads of the show together, like, one of the challenges of having like all this global instability, right? A war in Ukraine and is it we're not like dealing with this, you know, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like in other words, U.S. and European governments and international institutions are, you know, in, in total peaceful, normal times would probably have whole conversations about artificial intelligence that they just don't have the bandwidth to have now, too. So this all kind of happens on yeah. its own momentum. Yeah, we're going to like, uh, you know. <laughs> the debt ceiling is going to implode in our faces and we're still be fighting over like a Chinese spy balloon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. There you go. It's just there so stupid. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, you will hear Ben's conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna about his trip to Taiwan, about China. What else are they going to hear? Lots, lots of good stuff. Well, uh, you know, and basically his whole view of progressive politics, right? Perfect. Uh, how do we win the fight for the future? Win the future. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. 
Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. We are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World in person, Congressman Ro Khanna, a representative here from California, from Silicon Valley. Uh, good to see you. Ben, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Actually, wanted to just start. I did see, we, we've been covering Brazil on this podcast, um, and I saw that the Progressive Caucus met with uh, Lula when he was in town. What was his message coming out of their quasi-January 6th, <laughs> and, uh, and what did you guys learn in that exchange? Well, first of all, it was an extraordinary gesture. He wanted to meet with uh, Senator Sanders and then a few of us in Congress who had advocated for him uh, when he was in jail, saying that that was a violation of human rights. And then, of course, with President Biden. So he did it really as an act of uh, uh, solidarity and appreciation uh, for the advocacy. He had a a few uh, points. One, he said that the United States was totally missing in all these international forums. Uh, partly an indictment of Congress saying, where are you Where are you guys? Our parliamentarians are in all these forums. You're absent. Uh, and just a sense that the United States needs to be more present, uh, it, both from the executive branch and, uh, and Congress. His insight on the rise of Bolsonaro also, I thought, was uh, fascinating. He said that there had been such a movement of anti-politics, the sense that everyone is corrupt, everyone is terrible, that it gave a rise for someone like Bolsonaro to come and say, there's absolute corruption, I'm going to have a new way, and almost a cynicism about the political process giving rise to uh, authoritarian leaders. So this, and this is actually going to kind of lead us into the the China discussion, but before we get there, you know, we we had uh, Senator Sanders on to talk about this issue, right, his resolution on Brazil, and also the need for greater solidarity and exchange among progressives around the world. One thing that I think you're well positioned to do is that sometimes people separate out kind of progressive economic policy and foreign policy, right? So like a lot of people in Congress who work on things like economic inequality, industrial policy, they're domestic policy people. And they don't think of that as a global issue. Uh, whereas, you know, that if you look at Alula or all the, the, the left of center leaders who've gotten elected in Latin America, they have pretty similar platforms as uh, American progressives in terms of dealing with economic inequality, in terms of dealing with social justice, in terms of dealing with climate. And the Amazon, I'm sure, came up with Lula. Is there a way, are you are you able to kind of figure out how to break down some of these walls between, hey, we have these progressive ideas about domestic policy, but how do we internationalize them and how do we build connectivity with the political parties that share our, our worldview? Absolutely. Unfortunately, I think the right is doing a better job of doing that than the left. The Amazon is the obvious case, right? 80%, I think, of the Amazon is in Brazil. Uh, It was a a godsend that Lula won that was basically being destroyed under Bolsonaro. And what Lula is saying is we need uh, some funding from the rest of the international community to preserve uh, the lungs of the world. 
now that is something progressives who care about climate uh, need to be for or advocating or looking at uh, partnerships. I mean, you can't just have climate change in, in a vacuum. So that's the most obvious case. But the other thing is that talking to people in other countries gives a sense of uh, the similarities of challenges and uh, and struggles. The uh, challenge of race in Brazil, yeah. where uh, which had the highest uh, number of slaves and which still has a huge problem yeah. of uh, people who are indigenous and how they're uh, addressing that. And the uh, fact is, as progressive as Lula is, uh, the cabinet that he's assembled still doesn't look uh, as uh, multiracial as we would want in the United States. The issue of uh, the rise of Bolsonaro and what caused that and how is that similar or not from the United States. I think the it used to be that obvious that we needed to be engaged in the world. Yeah. And progressives would make a mistake by disengaging. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, uh, disinformation too, right? A uh, huge problem in Brazil too. Absolutely. Um, that was another, I don't want to interrupt, yeah. but he went on about that, about how he almost lost the election based on my district of what they were doing on WhatsApp and and Facebook. Yeah. And he said that there were, it, it was very interesting because the person who was the finance minister in Brazil basically ran against Bolsonaro the previous election. And he had a moment of humility, which actually has a similarity to Biden. He said, no one could have overcome the disinformation other than Lula. The only reason Lula was able to do it is because people knew him for 40 years. Yeah. And I thought that was similar in part to Biden, that Biden's familiarity for 40 years uh, helped overcome some of the disinformation. Yeah, it made it harder to turn him into a cartoon character. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about China uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, you've got, uh, I think, an important piece out that people should check uh, check out in foreign affairs uh, about kind of industrial policy and how we should think about an economic patriotism as it relates to not just China, but I think China is a focus. You're on your way to Taiwan <laughs> as, as we speak, so we'll get to that. Um, and you're on this committee, this select committee that's been established. It's one of the few things that the New Republican uh, majority's done. And I want to start, though, with this question of economic patriotism and industrial policy. And, and one thing is I actually don't know that people who don't follow us very closely are aware of just how much is being done in this space um, in the sense that Trump had his trade war. And right. everybody knew what that was, right? It, he put a bunch of tariffs on stuff and, you know, it was this kind of bilateral uh, test of strength with China. Um, when you stack up all that's happening now, um, and I'm not sure the Biden people have even kind of fully told this story of everything they're right. doing and that you've done in Congress. Um, you've got the CHIPS Act. You've got export controls. You've got a, a lot in the legislation that's been passed in the last couple of years. It kind of strengthens American industry. But stepping back and, and for kind of the, the layperson listening to this podcast, how would you describe what what is different about the Democratic Party's approach to China on these issues than what Trump was doing? Um, how would you describe what our, our industrial policy is, what economic patriotism is, what, what's been done and what you would like to see done uh, to, to outcompete China, essentially? Well, there's substance to what we're doing. What Trump did was... Uh, have tariffs, which ultimately led to a higher trade deficit by the end of his term. And he gave corporate tax cuts. Uh, I know the people in my district, they took the corporate tax cuts and they put the factories in Malaysia or they uh, bought back stock. But there was no effort to actually rebuild industry. There was no development policy. Yeah. Now, this is not rocket science. There are two periods in American history where we've had national development. Hamilton, which he built out the industry, 
and FDR were the women, actually, who built out the, the factories in uh, World War II. And we won World War II by outproducing the Japanese and, and Germans. One of the recognitions, I think, in Washington is that we need to produce things again. Uh, we made a mistake for 40, 50 years thinking that production didn't matter. This was kind of the, the dirty work. Uh, we could win the Nobel Prizes here and let the production just go wherever. And the consequence of that was severe. It was factory towns desolated. The working class, Thomas Piketty writes about how the defining people between 30 and 70% uh, median income, they've lost 25% of wealth since 1980. So when you talk about the decline of the American dream. It's not just subjective, it's factual. And part of that is because the jobs for production that sustained so many communities were leaving. And no one said, what did we say to folks? We said, okay, here's an unemployment check. Here's a little bit of training. Here's some trade adjustment assistance. But there was not any moonshot on economic revitalization. Uh, you know, President Obama in his Knox College speech talked about it. Others tried to talk about it. But the will wasn't there in Congress at the time. There's no way you would have gotten Congress to pass uh, economic policy to support reindustrialization. The first thing we did on the CHIPS Act was exactly that, where you had Republicans and Democrats cheering, say, yes, we need semiconductors in America. Yeah. And that was big. There are two factories in Columbus, Ohio that are going to be built. But my view is we need a chips act almost every year for different industries and a moonshot of economic revitalization in different places. And I think the core of the dispute with China from an average person's perspective in this country is why did my parents' jobs go there? Yeah. Why did my community's jobs go there? How do we rebalance that? And uh, and we should have an explicit goal of rebalancing uh, the economy with, uh, with China, with a goal of reducing trade deficits. Uh, and Larry Summers doesn't agree with me on this. I mean, not everyone yeah. agrees with me, but the the point is that uh, th that I actually think is good for China's economy. They're over reliant on an export economy with no consumer middle class. But that should be an explicit goal of the United States. So you've got the elements of trying to reindustrialize the United States, uh, try to prioritize investments in things like semiconductors, which you guys have done through the Chips Act, and you've also talked about you know challenging China on. On, on on this trade deficit, on the kind of dumping that they do here. Right. In terms of, what about in terms of like the limits, because you, you, you also see this movement to kind of restrict American investment in Chinese technology, to kind of stop the flow. I mean, you represent Silicon Valley, right? Like, stop the flow of venture capital from the United States into China. You're turning off the spigot essentially because a lot of American money has financed. It's not just the export-import imbalance. It's like the amount of American money that has helped turbocharge the Chinese economy as well. Like, what do you think about that aspect of this? You know, turning down what can be, you know, through export controls, certain restrictions on what can go there, what money can go there. Uh, is that part of this equation? Some of the restrictions that Jake Sullivan has uh, introduced uh, are sensible in terms of limiting the equipment needed to make the most advanced logic chips, with one caveat. He needs to get the Netherlands and Japan on the same page. And they're trying. But if they don't get the Netherlands and Japan, it's going to hurt American exports. And they're going to get that uh, from the Netherlands, Japan, or Taiwan. So as yeah. long as it's coordinated. But I don't think it should go to the point where we don't want Disney's theme park in Shanghai. Yeah. I mean, there's some people on my committee, uh, China committee, who, who believe that. My view is the more people in the world who celebrate Mickey Mouse, the better there is. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. they want to see the Black Panther movies or the movies about Avatar, 
great. I mean, yeah. that's a soft export of uh, American culture. So I think there has to be a balance. How do we promote exports, still promote our cultural exports, but not allow China to have uh, access to the highest end uh, technology? But we shouldn't be naive. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, China's uh, military or nu- nuclear facilities, the chips they got, uh, were pretty advanced because it's very hard uh, to prevent third and fourth party distributors from getting those chips into uh, into the wrong hands. And we currently sell chips uh, into China. I mean, that it's yeah. uh, 25% or so of some of these companies' exports. And there are uh, strong regulations and safeguards uh, about, and we should strengthen them. Uh, but the main thing is we've got to compete by investing here. Yeah. So, that makes good sense to me. I mean, uh you know, ultimately, you, you you want to win the competition by what you're doing, not by just what you're stopping the other guy from doing. So on the committee, you, there's a select committee. And what's interesting to me about it is there's been a lot of talk the last couple of years about the bipartisanship on China. You know, the CHIPS Act was a bipartisan action. There's kind of been a, a movement to a more hawkish bipartisan consensus on China. And and inevitably, when you have a Republican majority, though, you, you see some cracks there. And, and some of it's rhetorical, right? There's a balloon and the Republicans freak right. out and they want to go to war over the balloon. Or you hear, you know, you mentioned Disney, like, you know, it's going to be like hearings on woke capitalism right. and things like that. Um, but from a serious and substantive standpoint, uh, as someone who's been a, a strong progressive, but has also been willing to work on a bipartisan basis, what do you see as the differences right now heading into this committee? between kind of the Republican view of China and the Democratic view of China? The Republicans assume the inevitability of a Cold War with China. Yeah. That yeah. They, they assume we're in a Cold War. The Democrats still have more hope that a Cold War in the 21st century could be avoided, that we do need to rebalance. We do need to make sure that Taiwan has uh, the military capability uh, to deter an invasion, uh, but we still need engagement uh, with, with China and we shouldn't just assume that the 21st century is going to be these two great powers being in a Cold War. I, I would say in a nutshell, that's the difference. Do you worry about kind of a, a snowball that's getting momentum towards a Cold War where you see, you know, the freak out over the balloon? You see, you know, really some rhetoric about China that has led to even kind of anti-Asian American violence in this country. And you see like a lot of momentum behind much bigger arms sales to Taiwan, like uh, how worried are you about that taking on a life of its own? I am worried. I think when Mike Pompeo goes to Taiwan and is basically saying that Taiwan should be independent, that's a rejection of American policy going all the way back to Kissinger and Nixon yeah. with the Shanghai communique. I mean, he's basically rejecting the one China policy, uh, which is that China and Taiwan uh, should figure out the future uh, through peaceful diplomatic means and that we would support whatever Taiwan agreed to in that conversation. Uh, But if we are unnecessarily provocative, if we're going to be encouraging Taiwan to declare independence, or if we're going to be giving them false hope about how much the United States is going to going to do, uh, we uh, we could uh, unintentionally be provocative and, uh, and, and risk China taking military action, which would be catastrophic, catastrophic for the world. Yeah. Well, and so you're on your way to Taiwan. What do you hope to accomplish by going there? What are you going to be looking for? What are you going to be listening for uh, on this trip? So the most important meeting is not with the president, though I respect that and appreciate the president meeting. It's with Morris Chang who's really there, George Washington. He was the yeah. father of the semiconductor industry. 
And when the speaker went there, uh, he he didn't do a delegation meeting. He doesn't really do it. I think he's doing it with me because uh, uh, from Silicon Valley. But he met her at a luncheon, and he basically went on about how the Chips Act is never going to work, and Taiwan is way ahead in semiconductor production. So I want to find out what did they do. What what can we do to really uh, gain semiconductor production? And uh, even people in my district think he's very thoughtful, very intelligent. Uh, and and I want to make sure that we have a sense of how do we get more production of semiconductors in the United States. The second thing is to to make it bipartisan. That the commitment to pr- deterring any military invasion of Taiwan is bipartisan and steadfast. Uh, that. Uh, Democrats on the committee and Democrats more broadly recognize that, as your excellent piece in The Atlantic uh, pointed out, and I highly genuinely recommend that, uh, is that we we need to figure out how Taiwan can have better deterrence. You know, right now, a lot of their military is traditional. Uh, they aren't as focused on anti-ship or anti-aircraft missiles. There may be broader deterrence. Uh, they uh, may need some U.S. training in terms of building their capability. I am all for increasing Taiwanese deterrence while affirming a one-China policy. And that is the conversation I want to have. The final point, which I haven't gotten clear answers from, is I understand that Taiwan still has 25% of its exports into China. But I want to know how much Taiwanese investment is in China and how interconnected are Taiwan and China economically. My sense is they're deeply economically interconnected still. And what does that do in terms of the calculus of whether we're going to have a military invasion or not? Yeah, well, that's a that's a pretty robust agenda. I mean, just to break it a few pieces on the semiconductor piece. So something like 80 percent of advanced semiconductors right now are produced out of Taiwan with the CHIPS Act. Obviously, you're going to be ramping up domestic semiconductor capacity in this country. It may take some time to get to the more advanced technology. But do you see a world in which Taiwan is a part of the CHIPS Act? In other words, in the same way that you know, Japanese car manufacturers started building factories in uh, you know, American states uh, after uh, the, the 80s, do, do you see this as a potential partnership? I do. I, I don't know if Taiwan sees it that way. I yeah. mean, TSMC, the uh, preeminent Taiwanese company, is getting a fair amount of funding to build out their factories in Arizona. Yeah. And I think the, Chinese, the CHIPS Act is... Uh, agnostic. If it's an American company or a foreign company, as long as they're building the factories in the United States, as long as they're paying a prevailing wage, as long as they're not using the money uh, to enrich their executives or stock buybacks. Taiwan, I think, is concerned about that. And this is going to be a candid conversation with Morris Chang. They don't want Taiwan to lose their production capability because they think that's ultimately their guarantee of security. Uh, That's what makes the United States uh, so interested in Taiwan. So it's a balance of how we uh, how we do this. And then on the other piece, you know, the deterrence piece, um, I I wrestled with this and I, you know, uh, you and I were talking on the way in. You know, I felt like I was wrestling with it even in that piece I was writing and that my sympathies as someone who a small D Democrat, you know, are entirely with the people of Taiwan. (laughs) They've built this democracy. Frankly, it's a very progressive political party that governs Taiwan, that the only country in Asia that's legalized same-sex marriage. Single-payer um, system Yes, yeah, yeah, incredible single-payer system. Um, and they just want to be left alone, right? And they want self-determination, right? Uh, they're smart enough and calibrated enough to know that declaring independence might actually put themselves at risk. 
but often in the U.S., it's it's Republican hawks or even Democratic hawks, but kind of hawks who who embrace Taiwan because it's kind of provocative towards China, right? And, and Taiwan becomes this kind of pawn in this competition between the U.S. and China. How do you, as a progressive, think about the values-based case for supporting Taiwan, balanced against, you know, we as progressives don't want to provoke a war. Like, um, you know, how do you unpack that, those kind of sometimes competing impulses that we might have as progressives? Like, we want to support these people, they're doing the right thing, but we don't want to support them in a way that actually leads us into a conflict. How, yeah, how do you just kind of think about that? Terrific question. Oh, I mean, you start with the basic premise that uh, liberal democracy is better than authoritarian governance. Yeah. There may be some people who disagree with that, but that's of core value of mine. So we could say that the Taiwanese system of governance as a, a democracy is better than what China is doing to Hong Kong, taking away uh, liberal rights, or is better than the Xi Jinping Communist Party's governance of China. And uh, progressives shouldn't be afraid to make that uh, moral judgment. But then if we say that, look, we want to make sure that the Taiwanese uh, don't lose their uh, their democratic uh, way of life. Uh, we can at the same time uh, try to understand the pride that China uh, has and not be uh, confrontational in denying uh, their story of history, right? The, China sees this as a land that was taken from them from by Japan in 1895. Yeah. Uh, they see this as a uh, land that belonged to them. And I think that the the brilliance of the one China policy was kind of the affirmation of the Chinese narrative while uh, standing firm that Taiwan would have self-determination because anything that happened would have to happen with Taiwan's consent. And it was actually quite ingenious and it has stood us well over over time. Uh, and that's why I think one of the most important things we can do is affirm the one China policy uh, as we talk about ways that we want to strengthen military deterrence or have economic strength to rebalance the economic relationship with yeah. China. No, I think that, I mean, you know, that sounds right to me. And if you really press a lot of people in Taiwan, they just want to, you know, the status quo is working pretty well in the sense that they're left alone. There's not a war, but they, you know, they don't want to be swallowed up like Hong Kong was, but they don't necessarily want to be in a war like Ukraine is, right? Um, and they sell to China. I mean, look, I think Hong Kong spooked a lot of people in Taiwan. Wouldn't yeah, you it did, yeah. Say? I mean, and, and there was, uh, you know, the, the minority party, which has always been for more cordial relations with China and Taiwan, uh, I think lost in part because people saw what happened in Hong Kong and they said never in, in Taiwan. Uh, so the, the question is, can you ever uh, get uh, Taiwan with sufficient deterrence uh, where, where you... Uh, return to a status quo where where Taiwan can uh, engage in conversation with uh, with China uh, in a peaceful way and, and and prevent any any military invasion. So one last question I want to ask you. Um, you know, watching your career the last few years, getting to know you a little bit. Um, what strikes me is that you know we we are going to have a generational handoff uh, at some point. You know, in in in. in um, not just in this country, but globally, right? Uh, and I was when you said that the Chilean president was thirty-five. I said that's that's the age where you can become an intern on Capitol well, Hill, exactly. not, you, uh, you not lead a country. <laughs> well, that's the thing is you're starting to see younger yeah, people you come are. into office in yeah. Latin America, in parts of Europe, right. you know, um, in Northern Europe, particularly a lot of younger women. 
And what I've noticed about your politics over the years is on the one hand, very progressive, you know, chair of Bernie Sanders campaign or co-chair, progressive caucus member. But you, you know, and really uh, to listeners of this show, outspoken in opposition to things like the war in Yemen. At the same time, like you're someone who is able to work with Republicans or you'll you'll speak on, you'll go on Fox and, you know, try to talk to different constituencies. Uh, you represent Silicon Valley, which, you know, is a boogeyman to some people on the left because yeah. of the the things that, um, you know, social media has done in our politics. And so I feel you kind of trying to, 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 to take a progressive message, but to build the constituencies around it and to, to, to want to be able to talk to people in boardrooms as well as people on the factory floors. Like, what do you see as the most important thing that, again, like small D Democrats need to be doing to build like a majoritarian politics, not just in this country, but globally, that, that can kind of win this competition? I know it's a huge question, but like I, I see you trying to kind of find this space of how do we as progressives take authoritarianism seriously, not compromise our core values, but have ideas and approaches politically that that can win. Um, what what have you learned from the last few years as you've tried to do that? To have a politics of persuasion, not simply a politics of mobilization, and to have a politics of respect. In other words, the not to be too philosophical, but one of the the great thinkers, someone far far smarter than me, uh, John Rawls, had this line at the end of his life where he said uh, that. Uh, we shouldn't be so smug in our own moral convictions that we write other people off. And I think part of it is going into places and listening to people and understanding why are they upset? What is it that, that's bothering them? What is it that they're concerned about? And speaking to that in a way that doesn't compromise your values, uh, but is uh, uh, but, but is engaging them as, as an equal citizen. Uh, that to me is the, the 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 core challenge for the progressive movement, in my view, to become uh, a majoritarian uh, movement, and it has to be grounded, in my view, in history. You can't just have progressivism absent Americanism. Progressivism in America will look different than progressivism in Taiwan or China or Brazil, and it should. Our progressivism needs to be rooted in American history, American institutions. Uh, people were very upset at me when, on the left, when I voted against uh, for this resolution saying socialism is uh, is wrong for the United States. But I fundamentally believe that the free enterprise system, innovation, is a great thing in America. The problem has been the way the markets have been structured has uh, led to massive wealth inequality and people being left out. So how do we structure the markets in a way that's going to empower everyone? That's been my approach. We'll see if it works. Well, let's hope it does. Uh, safe travels to Taiwan, and it's great to see you here. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks again to Congressman Khanna for, for joining the show. Uh, ben, I forgot to mention, uh, Navalny. Yeah, the, nominated for Academy Award and won the BAFTA. They won the BAFTA. Yeah. Although, what what was up with um, Christo saying that he was disallowed from the ceremony because he said it was like a security risk? They wouldn't let him in the, at the awards. We let him in uh, this podcast studio. He was, <laughs> he was sitting right where I am today. You know? Grow some guts, yeah, BAFTA. Yeah, what does Cre- BAFTA stand for? Christo. Uh, British Academy. Yeah, made, made, you know, he made the sting operation, so people should watch Navalny. Uh, check it out. Award-winning film. 
Heard about here first. Yeah. Okay, that's it for today. Uh, Keep an eye out on this feed Friday because we will drop a bonus episode about the war in Ukraine one year in. So check that out. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. <laughs>